So Chris Walker, finally, here you are. Thank you very much for being here with me today, Chris. I got to say, this is probably the most fired up I've ever been for a podcast episode after that intro music. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so uh, today is a huge milestone in my career. I have in front of me, virtually, um, Chris Walker. Um, he, he changed not only for me, but for many uh, B2B marketers, the way we understand demand generation and B2B marketing. Not only that, but he was telling me uh, before the interview, it was started that he's now he's now gone a step beyond that. And now he doesn't speak about demand generation anymore, um, uh, which is super cool. And he'll explain about that. But for those who still doesn't know Chris Walker, which I believe is a huge minority um, or a little minority, I don't know how to put this. Uh, Chris is the CEO of uh, the CEO of Refine Labs, uh, demand accelerator for B2B SaaS companies. And in just four years, they have grown from more than 50 clients and more than 100 employees. This is why he describes himself as a business leader. But for B2B marketers, he has gone before, beyond that. He has reshaped our current understanding of demand generation. And he's also the host of Revenue Vitals, a podcast with uh, more than 20,000 marketers, I believe, who follow him and learn every week about demand generation. Is all this uh, right? Chris, or even bigger, I think your our, audience, I mean, I, I think that. our podcast is over 100,000 now. 100,000. Wow. You know, I, I've gone through all of your episodes. So, so some of the data that I have in my mind might be from two years ago, something like this. This is why. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So um, let's start. Um, you have stated that dark social is where demand is created. And dark funnel is where it is captured. Does that mean that dark social cannot be funneled? Because the way I see it, dark social uh, is a part of the funnel because it belongs to the journey, the discovery journey, right? For the B2B buyer. So how, how does it work? Why dark social doesn't belong to the dark funnel? I, I think that most people have historically followed this path of a funnel because it makes sense and they thought that people bought linearly um, but i think in the way that people buy today things have very much changed where you basically have two states this company or this person is either in market to buy your solution and actively looking to buy it or they're not to me it's more binary than this like trickling down funnel um, and when you think about it that way if you operate based on if a person is in market or not in market, you'll do entirely different things based on that binary result. If they're not in market, you're probably not going to try and get them into a sales conversation and have your salesperson waste 45 minutes pitching someone that doesn't want to buy and sending, doing a bunch of activities like that. And conversely, when they're in market, when they're demonstrating intent, when they're a company is on your website, when they're searching in Google for the category of what you sell, when they are doing things like that, you'd have an entirely different playbook for how you operate there. And so I think the funnel, the historical funnel, doesn't have a lot of clarity in what you should be doing at each point or the historical ways of doing it. Like, oh, somebody's in because they've opened three of our emails. They're in the middle of the funnel now. Let's send them a case study. I just don't think that that methodology of linear buying exists anymore. And I think it would be beneficial for marketers and revenue professionals to change their mindset around it. And so when we get into like the idea of dark social versus dark funnel, the real difference is whether the buyer is showing intent in intent channels or not. 
dark social, there is not intent there. They're not logging into LinkedIn to buy your SaaS tool. They're not listening to a podcast to talk to your sales team. And so in dark social, there's no intent. And then when they move into in market, they're going to do things that demonstrate intent, like search for your category in Google search, or fill out a request on your website, or reply to an email that your sales team sends them or things like that. And then they become part of this in-market active, active demand. And so those, that's the split that I've been trying to help people see is that you can't do, there's something needs to happen before a buyer demonstrates intent. Most of those things today are happening in dark social, which is a new concept for most people because just five or 10 years ago, most of the things that people do today to research, discover, and evaluate products didn't even exist or weren't being used widely by B2B professionals. Super. Yeah. Yeah. It has, yeah, it has sense to me. Um, it's very clear. Yeah. So basically, yeah. One of the things that I like to say is that the discovery process through dark social is always very erratic. Uh, it's not linear indeed, meaning that there is no way you can try to find like the average discovery journey for the buyer. Right. So yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay, there, there's another thing that uh, has been brought to my attention, and, and I know you're now going through a revolution in terms of demand generation and yeah, the service and, and the way you see marketing. But there is a new concept that I've had, that I have gone through uh, your post your podcast actually, which is damning demand. So now you're talking about creating demand, capturing demand, and now there's a new concept, a third one, which is damning demand. That's completely new for me. Yeah. What is that? So, so let's talk about it. So damning demand is when you are cr either creating or participating in a category of stuff, which is different or adjacent to things that people are already searching for, and then disrupting that buying process when they're looking for something and redirecting them to what you do. So for instance, you thought you wanted X, but what you really want is Y here. Let me show you why. Right. And so, an easy example here would be that many people come into our website today and we could easily say to them, Hey, you thought you were looking for a B2B demand gen agency that gets you leads and meetings that does what focuses on tactical work that spends all their time in ad platforms that doesn't have a lot of C-level involvement. And that's what you think that you want, but what you actually need is a, you need to transform into a revenue R&D function and organization that has high level of C-level involvement because it's critical and important to the growth of the business that is focused on holistic revenue programs, not just ad channels. So looking at everything like outbound events, partner, mark, you know, not even marketing, whether it comes to the website or lead gen, looking at holistic programs um, is focused on the strategy and orchestrating the execution, not executing just the tactics. And the the decision that companies need to make there is which one do you want, right? And so the goal overall of a new category is to for force a choice, not a comparison, just allowing people to choose. So damning demand is taking someone that's looking for something that they think that they need, but you have something new and different and you're going to disrupt that and try and guide them into seeing that what they thought that they want, they actually didn't need and what they actually need is you. And so when you do that, do you drive these audiences to, um, to okay, not identifying the need, I guess, and not to the, not to the top of the funnel, but where do you drive them in, where do you drive them in, in terms of uh, discovery or is it, is that dark social dark funnel? I mean, where, where should they be included? 
So, so typically this is an intent channel. Someone searches B2B demand gen agency, and then you either pop up in, in organic or paid results and say, hey, you thought you wanted a B2B demand gen agency, but what you actually need is to do something different than demand gen. Here, let me sh come, come to our website and let me explain to you or watch this video or listen to this podcast about why you should consider it that way. So you're literally dis you're disrupting a like a pretty high intent buyer and then trying to redirect them back into to back up and go back into discovery and decide, is this really the category that I want to buy or is there something better for my situation? Yeah, got it. So yeah, if they go to your website, for instance, they could end up going through your podcast, for instance, which could be discovery, right? So they, they start again a little bit part of the decision process. Yeah, you essentially need to disrupt the buying process and then back it up back to the specification of like, you've decided yeah. already that you wanted to buy shoes, but let's back up, maybe you want Crocs, right? Here's what mm -hmm. Crocs do, and then you can go and make a decision between these, you have to go back and decide what you want between these two categories. Yeah, talking about um, category, uh, that's key when creating demand, right? So what are the steps for a new company getting into demand generation to create its own category. Because we know that this is like one of the key, most important things for creating demand. So how can we create a category? I think that most companies try and do this prematurely and come out with something that doesn't hit and doesn't resonate. And so I think the first step is that you really need to understand your customers and identify who is our super consumer, who is the top 10% of our total addressable market that's going to actively promote us, be evangelists, get great results, tell other people about it and activate word of mouth, who actually are those people? And then how do we understand them? Because we've segmented so well, how do we understand them better than anybody else, which allows us to figure out and drive our revenue R&D strategy, as well as our um, category strategy and our product strategy. And so customer insights is always number one. Um, I think that how companies bucket the definition of marketing right now and inc include inside of marketing, demand gen, which is essentially operational support for sales, and then product marketing and category and brand. And they just bucket all these things into the category of marketing that it creates a lot of misalignments and com competing priorities about what's most important. And most often you see companies that are early stage that are trying to create a category that never get customer insights and just sit in a boardroom and decide, hey, this is, let's pick a couple, let's hire a creative agency. Let's pick a couple of nice words based on what we think, not what customers think. And let's just, you know, draft that up at our 2 million ARR company and then go out and try and do it with our demand gen team. I think that you need a lot more insights. From the insights over time, you generate a radical point of view which is typically driven through a missionary team and or missionary leader that's actually been doing this for a long time and sees a new and different future. So teaching the world, basically a point of view that teaches the world to abandon the old things that they've been doing and shows them a new and different future that they, they could be a part of. And then, so that's like the foundation. I consider that the strategy part. Who, who are we going after? Who are the top people? What are we gonna say? Why are we saying it? And then at the revenue team level, which has revenue R&D and the revenue team, sales and account, optionally account management, those teams are responsible for executing on that strategy by deciding how and when we're going to do certain things to deliver that message to those people. 
And so when you're creating demand, like we talked about, which mainly happens in dark social channels today that used to happen 10 years ago by sales professionals and at conferences and thing, and at SEO and things like that, that used to happen that way, now happens inside of dark social at scale where your buyers are seeing you know, hundreds of LinkedIn posts that include products, companies, things like that every day are listening to podcasts, are participating in communities that have tons of scaled word of mouth that are going to third party events that are not hosted by vendors, but maybe someone like me that is promoting potential products or categories or things like that. And so deciding how to activate that strategy, I think is up to the revenue R and D team and then having a process for how to manage those experiments and innovation to understand what's working and what's not, where should we be placing a, uh, additional investments? What things should we be killing or not doing anymore based on standardized objective data? Um, that's how I see it. Amazing, amazing. Um, you have you have said something about SEO. Uh, I wanted to talk about this because I know for some marketers it's still very controversial. I mean. I know you have a very clear understanding of how SEO can contribute to demand generation. And I, I believe that I agree with you, but let's, let's address something that, uh, 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 that it's on the web right now. Can SEO be used to create demand? No. And the, and it's, <laughs> I it's, knew a, that. it's, it's a, it's a simple no. And the reason why is because you have to understand what happens before someone goes to Google. There needs to be something that happens that drives someone to go into Google and out of the trillion different things that they could do or search in that platform, they search about something specific because something else created demand to drive that search. And so at that point, regardless of whether you think about it like a top of funnel blog or a middle funnel or a branded term or whatever, it doesn't matter about those things. Somebody needed to have demand created to even go and make that search, which demonstrates intent, which makes SEO a captured demand function. Yes, but um, I was listening to a podcast the other day with Gaetano Minardi, and, and he said something very interesting. Like HubSpot, actually, they created the concept inbound marketing. So he agrees with you. Uh, as you know, he, I, I believe he's your friend and you have... Oh, yeah. Uh, Katana's, yeah, Katana's yeah. the man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he said something very interesting about HubSpot. Uh, they created the concept inbound marketing. Um, and that's because, I don't know how many years ago, uh, they were in a blue ocean where actually they created a category the same way that you have explained. Um, and they started to build SEO with the term inbound marketing. So 10 or 15 years later, uh, they have managed to create a category where they are the leader. And whenever someone starts or yeah, starts the process to understand what inbound marketing is, yeah, HubSpot is the leader. So I guess there is an exception there, right? Yeah, I don't see this as an exception. Let me explain. Okay. Before someone goes to Google and searches inbound marketing or how do I do SEO or you know how do I get leads or do anything like that, the demand is still created. It's just created by that person experiencing a problem inside of their business or by someone else telling them about it, or their CEO saying, we need to get more leads, which then creates the demand for someone to go to search, or hearing about it at a conference, which was very popular to learn about marketing in 2007 to 2012, where most people got a lot of their information before SEO. And so I the demand is still being created. The difference is just whether or not you wanna take control over how the demand is created. And so if you wanna sit in search and wait for people to search for you based on what they find in their own business at random or what someone tells them at random, then that's fine. 
But the reality is that the demand is still being created elsewhere. And then once they get to search, it really it really becomes part of the demand capture process, regardless of where they are in their buying process or funnel driven through the intent that must be must be required to even make that search. So I'll I'll agree to disagree with my man Gatano right there. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, Do you do SEO at Refine Labs for Refine Labs? I mean, not for your clients. We uh, have not up to this point historically, and at this point we're implementing a SEO strategy, but it's a much different strategy than what most companies do. And so I'm looking forward to sharing more about the strategy, what we're doing, why, which is all surrounded around capturing demand for the category that we created, not trying to get millions of visitors from irrelevant top of funnel, high volume search blogs. Um, And so the terms that we're trying to be number one on dark social, hybrid attribution, revenue R&D, all these things that we created and now we get to capture the demand that we create rather than, yeah, yeah. You recently posted in a conversation on LinkedIn that uh, demand generation really means demand capture and in practice, it acts as operational sales support, get leads, MQAs, uh, produce MQLs, scores, etc. so that sales can do outbound sales. You, You said that. Um, can you give an example of that? Uh, I, I couldn't be more clear and bullish on this point that demand <laughs> generation in most companies is confused with demand capture and is driven to only do demand capture based on the outdated measurement models of multi-touch or single-touch attribution software only that prevent mm-hmm. or fail to measure most, if not all, demand creation activities today. And so what that function gets driven to do is not to focus on what are the right things to do to produce revenue. That function gets driven to do how do we produce the most amount of leads to drive our outbound engine at the lowest cost. It becomes an efficiency function that's focused on delivering a specific midterm output to sales rather than thinking about the whole holistic journey and understanding what are we going to do to drive revenue, which is an effectiveness function. Additionally, most demand generation marketers do not talk to customers making it an internal focused role supporting sales rather than a a uh, customer focused role that's focused on what are the right things to do to make customers successful there are multiple and lastly because of the measurement inside of what demand gen is for most companies today with the constraints of attribution software and the high volumes of leads and things like that it effectively prevents that function from innovating because it has such high controls over what that function can do and how it's measured, which directly prevents innovation. And so we need to rethink this whole function, which is what I'm talking about, about revenue R&D. When demand gen is internal focused supporting sales, which is efficiency focused on cost per lead or cost per meeting, which is highly controlled based on measurements and metrics, we need a revenue R&D function that is customer focused that looks at a holistic view that is based on effectiveness to drive revenue, not on a midterm thing like cost per lead. And that has a high level of autonomy based on the metrics and things that get set that allow that function to be innovative and drive the business forward. There are clear constraints on how companies set up their demand gen function, which is creating all of the issues on the revenue team today. And this is the solution. And I think many companies will then make the move to take some of the components that they have in quote unquote demand generation right now, which is like intent data, ABM, lead generation, things like that, and just put it under sales 
It, those are all sales or sales support activities. Mm -hmm. Most, a lot of companies are already doing that to put it under a CRO because it really is sales. And then to create a separate revenue R and D function that sits at the same level that becomes a counterpart to the CRO, creating the revenue team outside of the CMO that can then be focused on what are the right things to do over the next now to the next 12 months to drive the highest revenue, not to support our sales team with leads by mo moving the lead gen and sales support out of this function, you're going to create a lot of the right behaviors. And then the revenue R and D team is the command center inside of the organization. That's looking at all of the programs that are being run the podcast that the CEO does the outbound email sequences that the SDRs do the podcast that the brand team does the, uh, the trade, the trade shows and events that the brand team does the, you know, lead gen programs that the demand gen function is doing and looking at all of these things holistically and going back to the organization and saying, this is what's happening right now. We know about, we know this is what's happening right now because we use a standardized set of metrics across our entire business, which what happens today is most marketing teams, when they're behind their goal, they change the attribution model. They change the definition of an M MQL score. They change it from meeting sat to meeting booked, and they change their metrics to be able to hit the goals that they do. So every, and every team is doing that. Every team's trying to game their open rate metric or the number of emails that they send or all these different activity metrics. And there's no top level function that's saying, hey, we shouldn't do this shit anymore. This isn't about one department versus another or creating credit or having marketing source revenue versus sales source revenue and all the other garbage that happens in companies and looking at it holistically and providing guidance to both the CRO and the CEO and the CFO about what are the best things that we should be doing right now with the investments that we can make. Okay, ABM, account-based marketing. This is something now, uh, this is something that everyone's talking about. And um, I wanted to know what's your scope towards account-based marketing and how can it be executed along with the mind generation? So I think almost every B2B organization out there is in the account-based game. You have a defined set of companies that are ideal to work with that's just typically driven by either a named account list or company firmographics like size or industry or things like that. And so most companies are in the account-based game, but when you say account-based marketing, it means something very different. It means let's buy technology, let's, and then let's do a prescribed set of easy to measure tactics that our technology can measure in order to effectively combine marketing and sales into one engine that does sales. That's mainly what you get when you do ABM, which is why I've recommended that. I don't think that ABM is a bad activity necessarily. I just think that it's not really marketing. And so most companies I think would be better served to have their quote unquote ABM marketers actually report into the sales organization and work directly with the sales team enterprise reps on a specific set of accounts in this little team format and get it out of the quote unquote demand gen or marketing function because, and then you have demand gen and marketing that are competing against one another too, which I'm not going to go too much into right now. And so on one hand, yes, I think that every company has some level of a target account list, whether that list is a, a million companies or whether it's a hundred companies, some, they, they all have some level of an account based model. At the same time, I think that the idea of ABM and how it's been created and centered around technology and tactics, I think is, uh, is flawed and would be better put in a sales department. Yeah, but don't you think it would be interesting, like if the SDRs happen to be aligned with marketing um, and there was a, 
a beacon of a list of ABM targeted, target accounts, wouldn't it be interesting to make the SDRs to have their own content strategy, their own demand generation strategy, which would be targeting a targeted audience, something like that? If, if, uh, if you have a named target account list in your business, that means that you're going most likely after big companies and big potentially multi-year deals that are selling into executives or highly, highly senior leaders. And the idea that you're going to take your 23 year old profile, like SDR profile that they just got out of college, they probably smoke weed in the parking lot before, before work that day. And you're going to take them and they're going to be able to create their own content strategy to educate us, you know, a CISO or a CFO or a VP of brand on how they should be doing their job and where the future is going, I think is totally unrealistic. No, but that obviously could be aligned with marketing. That's why I say that alignment with marketing was important. So if marketing was distributing their own contents through the SDRs so they can get to the buying committee, that's a different story because we have control over the contents. It is not the, the SDR who should be the subject matter expert, right? So basically, we would be using the SDR to target certain accounts. Yeah, for distribution, that's it. So we get sure that our contents get to the right audience. Totally, I mean, I, I think that's what a lot of companies do today. Okay. So I'm, uh, I think that the intent of what most companies do today is far more driven toward converting someone into a meeting because that's how that function is scored versus educating and informing an executive about why they should be looking at the world differently. I think the metrics are also misaligned with the vision that you're stating. I don't think that it's wrong necessarily, but with the way that, and this is new to me, the way that I view the difference between marketing and sales is just very different. Like I don't even call it marketing anymore. Marketing anymore. There's two, yeah. there's two buckets. It's product strategy, product and category strategy, and it's revenue R and D. Um, and so when you look at those two things, it's just, it's different than teasing out like a marketing versus sales thing. Revenue R and D would be product strategy and category strategy would be delivering the messaging. Here's who we're going after. Here's the ICP. Here's what we're going to do. And then the sales organization is responsible for then taking that strategy, whether it's through SDRs or AEs or any other function that they have to actually go and decide when and how are we going to deploy this strategy, which could be through outbound email. And so the SDRs can do that independent of quote unquote demand gen. And then the revenue R and D function would be focused on measuring the effectiveness of that activity to decide whether or not it's worth, worth continuing to do, or whether we should put more gas in the fire and continue to invest in it. So it's like by creating clarity on what the objectives of each of these individual functions are and isolating them to their specific area of effectiveness, autonomy, uh, long, long range versus short range view that you create a much better and clear environment for what each, fu each function should do. Excellent. Okay. There is an elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> revenue R and D, um, you, you have already referred to revenue R&D a couple of times in this interview. So please, can you elaborate on that? Because I know this is now like a, a very important thing in RefineLab. So I'd love to hear more about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story right now to illustrate and paint a picture. So in the early 1900s, what doctors would do is that doctors would get patients and they would try and treat those patients one-to-one -one and they would collect anecdotal insights 
and they would share what they found with with one another without any level of scientific method or anything like that. When, When medicine was practiced like that, the average lifespan of a human was less than 45 years. In the early 1930s, there were drug companies that were coming out and saying, hey, like here's what these things do that were mislabeled, not driven by science and things like that. And so the, the FDA required that companies then have a level of scientific evidence to support their claims, which then created this idea of the scientific method, clinical trials, and an accelerated medical research from the 1930s to today, where the average lifespan of a human has almost doubled over the past hundred years. And I tell that story because what most companies do today in their marketing and sales engine is exactly the same as what doctors did in the 19, in the early 1900s. They run experiments on their own. They collect anecdotal insights from their peers and communities or from vendors at events that are, are driven or biased toward their points of view, et cetera, et cetera. And they have no science, no large scale science behind what they're actually doing or what decisions that they're making. And so they get very suboptimal results and the science of generating revenue has not advanced dramatically in the past 20 years. And at some point, companies will realize that there are the same as the drug companies, there are marketing and sales technology vendors that are promoting their products without any evidence of how they perform. And at some point, we'll we'll ask those vendors to create scientific data in a large scale format to be able to to back up the claims that they're making, not a case study from a company that, are, that has the same investors. And then when they do that, and we have large scale standardized data, and we have sets of companies that are operating in this way, that we'll actually be able to look at a much larger view and say, huh, we analyze these 50 companies that spend $100,000 or more a month on Google, and 96% of them get less than $2 in Hero Pipeline for every dollar they spend on ads, which means that their CAC payback is minimum 36 months. And that those types of conclusions are what's gonna drive this profession forward, because that stuff is happening. There's bad data on Google ads all over the place. Companies just don't see it because they've never looked at it in a scientific way, in a scientific study. They just look at it themselves and whether or not their investors accept the metrics. And so we are going to see, once this is in place, a rapid advancement and a rapid sophistication in how companies drive revenue overall, just like how medicine has evolved to the incredible, amazing things that it does today. And I'm excited to pioneer this. I studied, I studied, I went initially for pre-pharmacy into college, and then I studied biomedical engineering, and then I've worked for many medical device companies, so I understand how clinical trials work and how doctors never listen to vendors, and they only listen to third-party medical journals that are unbiased and provide objective, data-driven views about what they should do. And then the doctors only decide what to implement on their patients in real life based on what data backs. And we simply do not have that in the, in the profession of marketing or sales right now, and I'm super pumped because we're not that far away to building this. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, you're just reskinning your demand gen agency. And I go, ha ha ha, let's, uh, let's see about that. Like a lot of people, a lot of people do that because they're cynical. A lot of people do that because many companies do just put a new, new lipstick on a, an existing category. But I just explained to you a vision about how this is going to work in the future. It will, it will be less than three to five years before companies are operating this way, where they take data from a third party, like similar to a medical journal that they get in a large scale. 
They look at the method, so it's documented exactly how we did this, what we used, who we targeted, what budget we used, what the, we're gonna look at exact data and statistics. Here were the outcomes across all these different companies. Here are the conclusions, and here is a statistical confidence interval that if you implement this in this situation with these methods, that you can have confidence that you're gonna get this result. And that's going to be an incredible, powerful tool for companies and revenue professionals that has been seen in science. This is like, this is, I know I'm so confident in how this is going to work because this has already happened. It's already happened in biotechnology. It's already happened in pharmaceuticals. It's already happened in medical devices. This is just taking scientific concepts from advanced scientific industries and bringing them into the B2B revenue, you know, generation area which has never had any level of scientific principles. I get that you do a couple of AB tests and you send a you know, send emails with a couple different subject lines and look at some data, but you're still practicing medicine like doctors do did in the 1900s, looking at their own data and drawing conclusions that aren't based on large scale statistics. Yeah, it's amazing. No, and it's completely true. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's amazing the, the way many marketers perform nowadays they they work on based on 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 just old conceptions you know like like an an, an a b testing like it's amazing the number of marketers that i usually talk with and they run google ads because i don't know that's that's what it worked in the past you know and they expect to to make it work again and there is no reasoning behind that there is no understanding of the decision process they just do it and then mm-hmm. they do some A-B testing with LinkedIn ads and they complain because it doesn't work to get leads. And there is no way they can try to understand why does that happen? There's no science. Uh, it's amazing. Can I? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. There, there's no science. And, and if you can think about what an A-B test does is like you you run an a b test as if you're treating the symptoms of a patient right and so like maybe you you give them some like magic potion the patient and their symptoms go away for a couple of hours but the disease still exists right (laughs) and that's what you get in a lot of a b tests because what you're what what the people are optimizing for is not the end result they're not they're not optimizing for the patient to be cured of the disease they're optimizing to get a lead not revenue. Yeah. They're optimizing to have, you know, the patient's cold go away for a couple of minutes and then they treat that as a false positive to say that that's the direction that we should go. People are so in the micro, they're so in the, you know, should we do a carousel or should we do a single static image or should we make this video or should we run these ads on this platform or this platform? They're so in the micro and they, because there's no revenue R&D function or holistic view, they nobody's ever looking up and saying, are we even doing the right shit anymore? Like, should we even yeah. be spending money on Google ads right now? Should we even be doing, the, you know, spending $4 million a year on trade show booths still? Um, and there's just nobody that's because it's all departmental level budgets that the department leader gets to make a lot of those decisions, not someone that's overseeing the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing when they pay attention to the color of the uh, call to action button, for instance, in a website It's like, what do you want? You want to tweak your audience and you want to get fake leads because blue worked better than red. And then that's how you're going to get more clients. I mean, if you go through my website, for instance, it's the worst website ever because I rely on the fact that whenever someone wants to get in contact with me, uh, I'm talking from it from a UX perspective, right? Um, 
they will not care. They care about my concepts. They care about the way I work. And that's that's how I believe. That's what I believe should be important. You know, it doesn't matter whether you have mm-hmm. three fields in your forms or you have 30. It doesn't matter for a high-paying uh, customer. This is, the, this is the exact difference between demand, ge- demand generation and revenue R&D. All the symptoms that you described there, like do, changing the button color to get more form fills, that's a symptom of demand gen that gets perpetuated by the measurement constraints that exist in demand gen that get perpetuated by the mindset of the executives. I think that they should be doing demand gen and the whole ecosystem there. It's not just agencies, it's agencies, it's internal teams, it's executives, it's analyst firms, it's technology vendors, all operating in an old way of doing stuff, demand gen. And then looking at a revenue R&D function that is focused on revenue, that's looking at things holistically, that's zooming out and not caring about the button color, but looking at, are we delivering the right message to the right people? Is the message resonating? What's the balance between how we're investing in creating demand versus capturing demand? Why is our win rate so much lower when we do cold email to get someone give someone a gift card to do meetings versus when we do this instead? And someone's got to look at that stuff and, and say, this, these are the conclusions of this data. Um, companies put revenue operations on this and it's a huge flaw and it's a huge mistake because revenue operations needs to, is effectively an internal efficiency um, focused function. And so trying to have that function pull in a separate direction and be customer centric and effectiveness focused is very challenging and doesn't, doesn't work often because you have to do one or the other and ef- efficiency is always gonna prevail over effectiveness. And so I really think that there's a void in revenue teams that companies have tried to tried to put a bandaid on by having their CRO lead their marketing team or by have their RevOps team be strategic and customer focused and holistic, which is, is, is not working. And other things that they try and do, like hire a demand gen agency or other things, when really the issue is that they have a hole in their organization based on how it's structured, and they're missing this function that that is driving revenue, looking holistically, and has a high level of autonomy to do the right things. So one of the things um, CEOs, most of the times, they're concerned about getting uh, results in the short term. So if we understand... Mm-hmm. Uh, as results, getting new clients, new revenue. How can we accelerate that outcome from revenue strategies? So there's a couple of things that happen here, which I think create, set this function up for failure. The first one is how they measure the success of these programs. So what companies do when they develop a new product is that they say, okay, we have this idea of a product we validated that customers want it. We understand that it's gonna create a competitive advantage for our company. And so we're going to spend a quarter million dollars to build this feature without generating any revenue for the next six months, knowing that it's going to drive an ROI in the future. And they put it in a bucket that is not operation, not OPEX and not, not scrutinized on immediate returns. And then when companies do the, ex- the exact same thing, except instead of your product, it's your revenue engine, they put it in working dollars and they scrutinize the results of those working dollars in month one versus thinking about it like an R&D function and knowing that you're going to have to pay back on positive ROI over the lifetime of the program, just like you do over the lifetime of the feature or the product. And so one of them is how they measure. The second thing is that 
the timeline to get to results, if you're seeing no progress in six months, then that's a problem. Then you're not going to magically have it work all of a sudden. And so what companies fail to do is have a process that chunks out the, the, the development process that allows to see quick wins over time and see where each program falls, which is why we built the five-stage revenue development pipeline, where you start with an experiment and then all of a sudden, you know, our first experiment, uh, me posting on LinkedIn. And then all of a sudden, after you know, two, 60 days of doing it, we've had 10 highly qualified ICP buyers come to our website, say, hey, I wanna buy now, can I talk to you, Chris, about working together? And say that they heard about us on LinkedIn. So that's a good, that's a good signal, and that at, based on that objective criteria, it moves into phase two. Now we're in positive signals. We have an idea that something is working here, but we haven't made it repeatable, and we don't really know how it works. Then we keep doing stuff, and then all of a sudden, hey, we've generated $500,000 in pipeline for the past three months from this thing. And now it's going to advance from stage two to stage three. Now it's in repeatability. And then all of a sudden, after six months, you've generated $2 million in cumulative pipeline. You've invested $150,000 to develop the program. You're coming out of the gate after six months with incredible massive ROI, almost 10x ROI over the lifetime of the program. And it's like, like maybe that's how we should be looking at it versus just saying, oh, it'll be res a, a poorly defined d results that we need to get to sometime in the future where people just think that the cat like that, you know, all of a sudden you get it and it's just, you know, easy and that's really not how it works. So I think there's two things. It's how companies measure the ROI of these programs is highly flawed and a lack of process to show wins along the way and understand how programs are performing and ha making hard choices about, hey, this shit's been, we've been doing this for three months and it hasn't worked. We need to figure out whether we wanna kill this or we need to change what we're doing. And often those, those uh, tough conversations and tough decisions just never get made or always, or get made in the wrong situation where it's been three months and stuff, something is actually working, but a marketer can't communicate how or why it's working or put together an ROI story around it. And so the executives say, hey, fuck the podcast. It's been 90 days, we don't have we don't have any leads, we're out. And the reality is that the podcast was working, the marketer never installed self-reported attribution. Many people that were asking for a demo to talk to their sales team came from the podcast. They didn't have that data to go back because they didn't think ahead about what we're gonna need to measure these things. And the program gets killed, which is probably, like many people listening to this podcast, if you've been in B2B marketing for a long time, that's happened to you at least once on one program, on some program where you knew it was working and the company killed it because you didn't set up the right way to measure it. Yeah, that's a very important conversation to have to do with the CEO, right? Because um, for some reason, CEOs expect marketing to build uh, winning strategies from one day to the other, and it doesn't work like that. And, and actually, when, when, when you finally make it, you have built, as you have said, a competitive advantage for the company. And that obviously takes some time, yeah. This is why I call it R&D. And I think it frames yeah. to a CEO and a CFO on what we're doing here. And so I'll just, I'll just paint a picture here, okay? So imagine that you invest $25,000 a month to develop your LinkedIn organic strategy to promote your category. And you do that, you you do that R&D project for six months, so you're all in invested $150,000. And over those six months, in terms of pipeline, month one, zero, month two, zero, month three, 100K, month four, 200K, month five, 400K, month six, 300K. 
And so now you spent $150,000, you've generated a million dollars in cumulative pipeline over the past six months. If you define pipeline in the right way, based on win rate, you know that you're going to win at least 250,000 of that pipeline. So you've spent 150 over six months, you've generated 250 that's going to hit in the future based on the sales cycle lag. You're already ROI positive on the program and you started at zero. And in the past two months, you've done 400K and 300K, and you're probably well on your way to doing 500, 700, a million in a month. And you already have positive ROI and the company should be celebrating that. And that's literally not how it works in any, any business, which is, which is why you don't see any innovation in this and why companies just put all their money on trade shows and Google paid ads and SEO and other things that have been accepted by the market. Yeah. Okay. So last three questions. Um, CEOs listening to this podcast, one of the things that you have stated many times is that uh, CEOs should understand uh, how important it is for them to create content, to be the leader of their companies um, within the market, not just within the company. So um, how do you see this? I mean, if you were in front of a CEO uh, talking about the, 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 how important it is for them to be the leader uh, in the category, in the category, not just in the company, what would you say? I think that it's beneficial for the CEO to be doing this, but for many CEOs listening, I'm not sure that you want to, or that you should. And so okay. I believe that it's a, it's a powerful strategy that I've used and watched many other CEOs use that have built and dominated large categories. And so if you're not doing it and you choose to do other things, just know that you're potentially missing out on a lot of, a lot of upside for your business. Um, I think that the thing that CEOs need to understand is they need to start to understand why their demand gen and sales function inside of their business are not working and retool, understand well enough to retool their demand gen function for what their business actually needs today and to understand it well enough that you're not a huge blocker in the go-to-market organization. As a CEO, like 20 years ago, as a CEO, the things you needed to understand were product and sales. Today, the things that you need to understand are product and revenue R&D. How to, how to create, capture, and damn demand across a ton of different programs and look at it holistically to drive the right decisions. You need to understand those two things better than anything else because if you can figure those things out, then selling the product is an absolute commodity. It's absolutely easy to sell something when you have built the right product and you've engineered a system to be able to drive revenue now and in the future. And so with that said, I think being educated on the most critical things are, are what's actually needed. And I think that a lot of CEOs be, still operate in the old world where they say, the only thing that I need to focus on in my company is engineering and sales and marketing will marketing will figure itself out and i can just hire a good cmo but what actually happens is that the ceo drives the whole business their subconscious or conscious decisions drive the whole business it gets in the way it changes how investments are allocated it changes how teams operate together um, and so i think that smart ceos have known for a long time and watched what customers were doing that figuring out how to do what most people will call marketing today is actually the secret weapon to growing your business along with having a killer product and a great point of view. 
Um, and so that's, that's what I would, that's what I would say. I don't think that you need to do it. I think that you're, you're compromising a lot of upside, but I'm also very empathetic to different sizes and scales of organizations, different personalities of, of CEOs and people, um, different personnel at the executive level on companies. And so there's a lot of variables that makes me feel like it's not right to say that you always should be doing this, but I do think that if you're not, you're missing upside. Absolutely. Okay, two last questions. Um, quick questions. Sales team, compensation, fixed or not? I recognize that what I'm about to say, most people are going to react negatively and think that I'm wrong. So I would encourage you to um, get past that initial reaction and consider logically what I'm about to say, which is that I like the, the variable compensation plans for sales professionals started before the year 2000 when there was no internet where most often sales reps did the prospecting the selling the marketing and the account management once the customer was closed and managed it for the whole life cycle that if you weren't out there starting conversations and going to events and networking and finding opportunities then none of it was going to come to you and the world of sales was very different 20 years ago and was appropriate to have people on a 50% salary, 50% variable comp plan, or even more skewed toward variable. And a lot of people that were good sellers at that time said, I want to be skewed toward more variable because I believe in myself. And what's happened over the past 20 years is that the dynamics of how buyers buy have fundamentally changed, that most buyers buy through the internet, that they research and discover things with their peers that all functions in the business are responsible for creating and capturing demand, like customer success evangelism, CEO promoting the category, the sales team creating content on, on LinkedIn or other platforms, the, the sales team hosting sale, like events for prospects or people in pipeline, the brand team creating a podcast. All of these teams are doing things that are, that are effectively driving revenue. And so I, uh, I just feel like that's where people should go. Absolutely. I mean, it's like um, uh, when, when I hear when I hear you saying this, um, I always remember the Wolf of Wall Street, the boiling room, the way they 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 sell, and um, that would be impossible nowadays because buyers don't buy anymore like this. Even though uh, companies so still has- try to do it, there are a lot of companies that still run a yeah. boiler room type thing. And I want to drop another thing, and you reminded me of it, is that. The if you think about the individual sales reps here, all that a variable commission plan does is hedge for the company that says, if we plan wrong, if we were too aggressive, if we hired too many people, if we can't create enough demand, then we don't pay for it. The sales rep just makes 50% less money. We put them on a pip and we fire them. And so all this, all it is, is a company centric strategy that hedges if they do the wrong things. And then who takes the brunt of it? The sales professional every day. And so if you actually forced, and what we do at my company is it's 100% salary, the OTE and the salary are the same, and the OTE at my company is significantly higher than the OTE of a 50-50 comp plan for an AE at a tech company. And so our people make more and are guaranteed the whole thing. And then it's our responsibility to create the conditions and to hire as many reps and create an appropriate amount of demand so that the business can achieve its goals and have a, have a reasonable customer acquisition cost. And so it puts all of the responsibility back on the business 
to deliver, to set the right conditions for sales and the rest of the company to be, be successful, which is something that variable commission plans do the exact opposite. Um, and so I look forward to sharing more about what we learn as we continue to scale our sales organization. I'll be sharing things, but at, up to this point, regardless of how it works for us, most, uh, most it's like 47% of sales reps are hitting quota right now. So most sales reps aren't even hitting OTE. Yeah. It works. Um, yeah. so I, yeah, I just think that there's a, that there's a real issue in how companies do this and they always try and say, Hey, let's put marketing on a variable comp plan and shit like that. Um, and try and model it to sales because sales is the dominant function in an organization, regardless of whether or not it should be in present day, it has historically been. And so that's what it's going to continue to be until somebody changes it. And, uh, putting marketing on a variable comp plan is one of the stupidest fucking things I've ever heard. I, I did actually promote and think that we should be doing that in 2017 when I was driving tons of revenue for a company and making $95,000 a year while salespeople made 300, 400,000 based on the people that I created demand for and gave them. And so I actually thought that it should be a variable comp plan, but it's the reverse. It's that, that the quote unquote marketing and sales comp structures are so far apart based on how it used to be historically. And it needs to level off where marketing and sales professionals are getting paid more equitably. And I believe that when you do that, you should also transition from a variable comp plan. I recognize that if you're Salesforce or Oracle or even a, th a thousand person company, that changing that would be incredibly hard and you're probably not going to do it. So cool. Keep doing what you're doing. But for new companies coming up that are trying to do things the right way, that are trying to grow efficiently, that are trying to set their people up for set their salespeople up for success, that are trying to get the top revenue R&D professionals to be able to, to work at their company you're going to have to make some changes because the old way of structuring this is not, not going to give you the things that I just said. Okay. For closing the interview, I mean, that was a very interesting point of view. I mean, and, and I'm looking forward to, to implementing it because it's difficult to do it. Um, but I'm looking forward to do it. Um, last question for closing the interview. How do you see B2B marketing in five years? You have said some things already, but how do you see it in five years? I don't think that there will be a B2B marketing in five years. I think that this, the functions will be divided. It's been just throw a bunch of shit in marketing and then we'll call it that. And, and I think that it's not serving most organizations anymore and it continues to get more complex and uh, continues to get more complex. And so I think that most companies will divide the function into logical groups, which include revenue R&D, product and, product and category strategy, and then move the operational component into a, into a centralized function called RevOps. And when you do that, you're going to have a lot more clarity on what each function does and what their responsibilities are. And I think that abandoning the term marketing and abandoning the function of marketing, plenty of people, CEOs and CFOs know their marketing function isn't working. CMOs complain about the constraints that they get in. The average tenure, I think, of a CMO is currently 13 months. Like, it's clear the function isn't working. Just no one has presented an alternative except for put your marketing team under the sales team, which is also very stupid. And so I think that this is a entirely new way. It's something that I've, I have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of passion for because I've seen how organizational structures break with the current marketing setup. So you know, it's early, but I'm looking forward to pioneers that are going to try this and join along with what I'm doing and create a much better environment for their company and a, a much better environment for their team and a much better future for their company. I'm certain, I'm certain you will, you will make it again, Chris. Uh, thank you very much. 
it's been super interesting. Um, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, it has been a huge milestone to be here with you today. Uh, you're like a mentor for me. So thank you very much. And uh, it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'll let you know next time in Barcelona. I love that place. Fantastic. Let's, uh, we'll go out to have a beer. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Pablo.